Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research. Simon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the podcast series today, looking at Brexit and trade before your November conference on Brexit, bringing academics together. Simon, to what extent can we attribute the Brexit vote to neoliberalism? In the short term, we've had austerity the last 10 years or so, but we've had neoliberal policies really since the late 1970s. Neoliberalism is, I would say, not so much an economic idea, but a political philosophy that places the market above society in a sense and sees the role of government as being to promote market forces, to regulate them only a little, to essentially constitute the market and to allow the market to work. And in this country, in the 80s, with Thatcherism, this implied deregulation, privatisation, a shrinking state, a larger role for finance in the economy. And we now know that the implication of those policies, long run, is loss of the industrial base and growing social and economic inequality. Austerity, since the beginning of the financial crisis in 2008-2009, kind of deepens neoliberalism, because this is saying the cure for the financial crisis is to, again, shrink the state even further, to protect but also to elevate finance. And this has uh, tightened the screw, essentially. Inequality rose, poverty grew more quickly after the beginning of the Great Recession, 2008-2009. And the Brexit referendum vote was held in the middle of a period when austerity was producing huge disenchantment with politics. And I think the background to the Brexit vote is not really disenchantment with the EU. Opinion polling showed that wasn't a big issue for most people before the Brexit referendum. It's disenchantment with the effects of austerity and with the British political class. But Brexit, the referendum, provided an opportunity to vent that disappointment, in in some cases that anger against the political class. Now we have the problem of Brexit. And it's clearly about an unequal society. Yes, I think that the the composition of the Leave voters is interesting. Most of the Leave voters were middle class, but a significant proportion were in parts of the country and from working class groups which have been affected by deindustrialization. So the Leave vote, most Leave voters were what we broadly call middle class voters in the south of England, in the suburbs. A minority only were working class voters, but enough of those voters tipped to the Leave side many also voted Remain, enough tipped over to the Leave side in parts of the country affected by recession and deindustrialization. South Wales and northeast of England in particular, these areas tipped over. That was enough to tip the overall vote for Leave. The possibility of a no deal is very much in the air at the moment. What would be the implications of a no deal for trade? So if after the 29th of March we haven't made a deal with the EU, by which I mean there's no withdrawal agreement and no declaration about the longer-term relationship, we become a third country. And at that point, we no longer have frictionless trade with the European mainland. But also, our current preferential trade agreements, with the, the 50 or so of these, which the EU has with third countries, they also fall away. So we move from a situation of having frictionless trade with the other EU member states and having near frictionless or at least highly beneficial trading relationships with much of the rest of the world at the moment to having none of that after March 2019. So our trade would become more complicated, tariffs would have to be applied and there would have to be customs checks on intra-EU trade. 
people are talking about the roads being closed in Kent, but the possibility of us doing trade if we just, on the 29th of March 2019, fall over the cliff edge. You're trying to say it's not possible. We can certainly still trade, but the point would be that at that point, UK goods exported to mainland Europe would be subject to tariffs. The EU would treat us as a third country, so the tariffs currently applicable to the rest of the world become applicable to us. In effect, as well, under WTO laws, at that point, we'd be setting a tariff on our trade with the EU, which would be the same tariff. So again, our own exporters to the mainland of Europe would be at a disadvantage compared to the position they're now in. Now, we can unilaterally cut those tariffs under WTO law rules, but we must do that for every country in the world, not just for the EU. So the most favoured nation clause is something of a constraint there. In addition, it's not just the tariffs, which range from, say, 10% for motor vehicle parts to tariffs of as high as 40 or 50% for agricultural goods. Those are very significant amounts of money. But it's not just the tariffs, it's the customs checks because there would have to be rules of origin checks and quality checks on goods flowing between the UK and the European mainland. This is why people worry about long delays on the motorways in Kent. At the moment, what's frictionless trade becomes highly, well, okay, uh, there would be heavy frictions, let's put it that way, simply by virtue of the customs checks that would be needed, at least for a certain period of time before these new arrangements bed down. Now, sooner or later, I would imagine that these things can be dealt with effectively by new technologies, maybe by checks taking place away from the border. Sure, in due course, maybe after a period of time, it would take, we think at the moment, months or years to get to that point, trade can be, uh, even regulated trade can become less heavily distorted by checks. But this would take time. So in the short run, yes, Presumably that's why they're considering building lorry parks in Kent and using the motorways for this purpose. How prepared is the UK economy for a no-deal Brexit? We have a department for Brexiting the EU. There's been lots spent on the possible scenarios of a new deal. But do you think the UK is prepared for a no-deal and a cliff-edge Brexit next March? Well, the UK isn't remotely prepared for that. And in a way, it's hard to see how it possibly could be, because we've been moving yeah, really, really overnight, more or less, from a situation where we have integrated trade to a situation where there are very, very significant barriers to trade. We would also no longer benefit from certain long-standing international regulatory arrangements. And this essentially is not just about trade, but about regulatory cooperation. So rules about aeroplanes flying, rules about trains moving, also rules about exchange of of, of nuclear materials, rules about food safety. Here we have regulatory cooperation with effectively the rest of the world via the EU. If we were to leave the EU with no deal in place, those more uh, general global international regulatory arrangements begin to fall away. So again, for a limited period of time, certainly weeks, maybe months or longer, we wouldn't have the necessary mechanisms in place of regulatory cooperation to ensure that matters such as transport, exchange of medical materials, all these things were continuous before. It's really almost impossible to plan for that when you don't know six months ahead whether it will be happening. And it may be that we even won't know into the new year. To plan for this sort of enormous shift in our trading regime would normally have been something that we would have contemplated over a period of years, not weeks. If we look forward to withdrawal 
on the 29th of March 2019, next year. How likely do you think it is that Theresa May and her government will actually agree with the EU a withdrawal agreement? But as a lawyer, how likely do you think it is that the UK will sign that withdrawal agreement and then go on to sign during the transition period a political agreement and trading agreements? Okay, so just put this into context, what we're looking at is a withdrawal treaty which will govern effectively the terms of the so-called divorce between the UK and the EU. In addition to that, there'll be, we we think, a political declaration which will set out the endpoint, the envisaged future trading relationship between the UK and the EU. Between March 2019 and December 2020, there will be a transitional period. The main stumbling block right now to a withdrawal agreement is the issue of the Irish border. And if that can't be satisfactorily resolved, then there won't be even a withdrawal agreement, there won't be a transitional period, and we just have to pick up the pieces after that. We can, of course, continue to negotiate towards a free trade deal, but there's no transition. That's the the critical point. And if there's no transition, it will be much, much harder to negotiate a free trade deal going forward. And there will be the disruptions that we've just been discussing. So this is the situation we're in. There must be, one imagines, very strong pressure on the UK side to avoid a hard Brexit with all the negative short-run medium-term effects which that would imply. But this doesn't mean that a withdrawal agreement can inevitably be arrived at because so far nobody has been able to come up with a solution to the Irish border problem which satisfies all parties. That is to say, the UK government, the Irish government, the DUP in Belfast and also the EU. Talk now is of a fudge on the Northern Ireland backstop agreement that was signed in December 2017, which effectively means keeping Ireland in a single market and a customs union, there should be no hard border. If there can be a fudge on the Northern Ireland border issue that takes us through past withdrawal on the 29th of March next year, Is it likely that we'll then have almost a truce for two years while the transition period and the talks continue? We we don't know what agreement might eventually be made, but at the moment the EU is saying you must agree to Northern Ireland effectively staying in a single market and the customs union, at least uh, insofar as a Good Friday agreement really necessitates that or makes that desirable. So if that continues to be the EU's position, then the question then becomes, what about the rest of the UK? In order to avoid a so-called border in the Irish Sea, will we not have to align rules and regulations and trading conditions between Great Britain and Northern Ireland? Yes, to avoid that partitioning effect. So I think what we're looking at is, unless the EU changes its position, so far it's given no sign of of being willing to do so, we're looking at a transition period where, in any event in that transition period, the UK, all of it, is fully aligned with the single market. That's the point about the transition period. But going forward, after the transition period ends... What's envisaged in the notion of the backstop is that Northern Ireland, even after the end of the transition period, stays in the single market and customs union. And it could be that in order to avoid partitioning of the UK, in effect, the whole of the UK remains in some version of the customs union or single market, even after the end of the transition period. That's that's one possible outcome. That, of course, means it's really impossible then for the UK to have a fully independent trade policy of the kind which some supporters of Brexit want. 
Those appear to be the options. The difficulty in agreeing that the UK should simply stay in the single market and customs union is, as I say, that this doesn't accord with the wishes of many who supported Brexit and indeed with some critical members of the political class inside the Conservative Party who may have a say over the short-run outcome of all this because they have the votes that could bring down the Prime Minister. Do you think the arguments about Brexit have got more extreme in that we're still two and a half years on arguing about Brexit and the terms of Brexit when people would have opted for perhaps an arm's length relationship with the EU, perhaps EEA style relationship, perhaps super Norway staying in the single market and signing up to a customs union rather than the Canadian style deal, which is really doesn't have obligations attached to it in the same way. Do you think the arguments have become more extreme as Brexit has gone on? Well, a major argument by supporters of the Leave campaign during the referendum was that EEA membership and EFTA membership, EEA participation and EFTA membership, was a perfectly viable alternative to EU membership. Since the referendum has taken place, the centre ground in this argument has somehow shifted, and now many, many Brexiters are no longer prepared to offer the EEA as an alternative option to EU membership. Many of them now believe that we must have a fully independent trade policy, which implies breaking with the EEA, not just with the EU. So yet it appears that the centre of gravity has, has shifted. On the other hand, on the Remain side of the argument, there are still some groups, of course, who would like to argue for a second referendum and for staying in the EU. There are others who would be satisfied, I guess, with an EEA option. But, yeah, the debate appears to be polarising because many people on both sides of this debate do not feel that EEA membership is, or participation is a good option because the UK then is simply a rule taker. At least with EU membership, we can influence the rules to which we would be subject. That's just not possible, I think, with the Norway option. But on the other hand, Norway would give us frictionless trade. And you said at the beginning it was important to keep post-Brexit frictionless trade. Is that going to be two years of negotiation, on top of the two years of negotiation we've already had, when we get to the end of transition, and we still haven't agreed what terms of trade we want, or whether it should be frictionless or not, and whether that impedes free trade deals elsewhere in, in the world. How likely is it that all these complex issues will be resolved in that two-year transition period? The UK's position has been all along that they wouldn't frictionless trade without the obligations of EU membership. And the EU has said, the more you want an independent trade policy, the more friction there'll be in the trade. That's, it's that simple. So one, one is just traded off against another. So now the UK has no choice but to acknowledge that this is the EU's position. We, we really have no very strong bargaining position on this. So it is absolutely the case that if we want to maintain frictionless trade with mainland Europe, we have to accept compliance with many EU rules and regulations. This would appear to be through a kind of EEA option. We wouldn't formally be, be within EFTA, and at the moment we're talking about a highly anomalous constitutional position in the transition period where we are no longer members of the EU and perhaps not even fully participating in the EEA processes, but are nevertheless subject to EU rules and regulations as, as if we were. This is extremely anomalous, and it is indeed the case that it may continue after December 2020 if by that stage it's been impossible to arrive at a free trade agreement with the EU. And actually, I think it's very unlikely that we will have arrived at a free trade agreement 
by December 2020 because there isn't enough time to resolve some very complex matters. And the EU will not just roll over and agree, obviously, that's now obvious, to whatever the UK is proposing. In fact, the EU is going to drive a really hard bargain. And this is especially the case if the EU believes that the purpose of Brexit for the UK is to undercut the rules and regulations of the single market. In a way, that's the only logical conclusion one can arrive at. The purpose of Brexit, for many of its adherents, and indeed it just seems obvious that this is what's going to happen, is that there'll be an undercutting of labour and environmental standards in due course. Once we leave the EU, even though EU law becomes part of UK law under the Great Repeal Act, once it's passed, of course those laws can be changed in future. So the EU is not going to give us a generous Canada plus 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 free trade agreement if it feels that the whole point of this relationship is for us to be able to undercut the EU. And that was the purpose of signing up to those four freedoms in the single market and signing up to what is called regulatory convergence, isn't it? That, that we actually shared not just tariffs and trading deals, but standards too. How threatened are those standards post-Brexit? Well, the, the critical thing is to think about trade and regulation as being two sides of the same coin. So the single You can't mar- separate them. Well, they're, 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 they're very, very closely related. So when we talk about free trade, we're really talking about which regulatory regime do we wish to be subject to. Inside the single market, there is the notion that there should be a high degree of harmonisation and convergence of rules. Alignment is sometimes the word now used. Regulatory alignment is a condition of frictionless trade in this sense. And that's the the basis upon which the European single market has been constructed. So it's a uniquely deep international trading arrangement because of the high degree of, of regulatory compliance which goes with that. We can't achieve regulatory autonomy without giving up free trade in, in this particular context. So the, the critical decision for UK policymakers is what will the consequences be of moving away from compliance with EU rules and regulations. The first impact will be felt in those industries which currently rely upon alignment in order to function. So the car industry, a big firm like Airbus, those supply chains will be very negatively affected by any regulatory divergence. And this is not just a question of rules about tariffs. It's not just about uh, checks. It's about convergence and alignment. If we want to separate our regulatory system from the systems which have emerged under the single market, we are imposing new non-tariff-based barriers to trade, which will very seriously affect these big, long, complex supply chains for major manufacturing firms. They're the first to be hit. And that's why it's not surprising to hear that many of the big car companies are going to put their production on hold. If there's a prospect of uh, a hard Brexit, that they'll, they'll maybe pause their production lines for a while to see how their new supply chain arrangements can work. That is not in the least bit surprising, but that will have inevitably a very, very serious effect on on jobs in those sectors. And workers' rights? So on workers' rights, at the moment, the plan is to bring all of EU law into UK law under the Great Repeal Act, so-called. And, of course, there are many aspects of labour law not covered by EU law. But the issue here is, if the EU thinks we're using Brexit as a pretext to lower labour standards and compete not on quality but on labour costs with mainland European enterprises, they will be very unwilling to do a deal with us, which is a deep and enduring free trade deal. We're going to get the minimal so-called bog-standard free trade deal with the EU if that's what we say we're trying to do. So although the government has said they're going to maintain labour laws post-Brexit, the point is that these are political declarations. They are not binding 
legal rules. At the moment, we can't undercut single market standards because our legal system is such that this isn't really possible. Political words in this context matter much less than hard legal reality, it seems to me. But that surely means that if we've got a transition arrangement of two years post-Brexit in March 2019, the trade talks are going to continue. But we also have trading ministers going out trying to sign deals with America, and perhaps that threatens food standards, as some allege, or perhaps rowing out to China or India. In that two-year transition period, will we be able to sign free trade deals with the rest of the world outside of the EU? Or should we just have the pen ready for the end of transition? How will that work? It's still not entirely clear, and it, it may depend upon what's said in the withdrawal agreement and political declaration. But once we've left the EU, then in principle we become just a third country, and we can begin to negotiate. I doubt we would conclude, but we can presumably begin to negotiate or have discussions about negotiations with other third countries. But in practice, other trading blocs, other big trading partners, potential trading partners for, for preferential free trade agreements, are most unlikely to want to make an agreement with the UK if they're still negotiating with the EU. And that's the case for Japan, and that's the case for uh, the USA, and I, I think, in, in essence, for China. So the reality is, it's very unlikely that in the two-year period up to December 2020, we're going to replace our current very deep and successful trading relationship with the EU, with the other EU states at the moment, with mainland Europe in, in the future. Very unlikely that we're going to replace that with a similarly deep and comprehensive set of free trade agreements with third countries. Social rights, immigration, how do you think that will play out during the transition period? Shortage of workers in the NHS, shortage of workers in the agricultural industries. Do you see those as being legitimate concerns? In the transition period, nothing will change, so migration will continue as it did before. Of course, businesses are having this transition period so they can begin to plan for a world in which they may no longer be able to access uh, labour supply from continental Europe. But it will nevertheless be a huge shock for sectors like agriculture and hospitality, where there's a very high proportion of at the moment, EU employment. and Also, the university sector is another area where there has been a, a very large integration in effect of British and European labour markets. Now, after the transition period ends, that, that's a critical point at which free movement of labour will stop, as between the mainland of Europe and the UK. And at that point, firms must have plans in place, perhaps to replace labour with capital. They might decide to invest in labour-saving machinery, it remains to be seen. Another possibility is that the UK then puts in place post-Brexit arrangements for workers to enter the country, not just from the EU, but from other countries, uh, on, on special labour arrangements in agriculture, possibly in hospitality. This sort of controlled migration is possible. That will have to be compliant with WTO law, but many other countries do this. Now, this would mean, in effect... Those industries like hospitality, like agriculture, are going to be pleading with the government for seasonal labour schemes and other special labour migration schemes. The workers concerned would probably not be receiving the British minimum wage. There may well be special rules applicable to them. They may well be paid on very different wages and regulated by very different terms and conditions and probably would then be undercutting the domestic labour force. So the idea that after Brexit jobs which were previously being taken by mainland European EU citizens 
will suddenly become available to UK workers. That doesn't necessarily follow. It may no longer create those jobs. They may replace labour with capital, or those jobs may be taken by workers under seasonal labour schemes from other countries. So I don't know if that will happen. But staying in the EU doesn't prevent us, I believe, taking the fundamental measures we have to take in order to improve the British economy. And fundamentally what, what we could be doing, and maybe one day will do, is make the case for actually a different EU. If we think that the EU itself has become too neoliberal, maybe even in parts deregulatory, which is part of the irony of this debate, the EU itself has become more neoliberal over time. If we think this is the wrong path for the EU, and therefore the wrong path for us, we need to be making these arguments in Brussels and not just in Westminster. Because whatever we decide in Westminster, in the devolved parts of our country, will inevitably be affected by the European and indeed by the global context. Whatever choices we make about regulation are going to be affected by the wider regulatory and global framework. So if we believe that more effective regulation and higher social and environmental standards are the way to go, we should be making those arguments in Brussels and making them as forcefully as we can. Those arguments need to be made at the UN, at the WTO, at the International Labour Organization. So I would turn this argument completely on its head. We need to be arguing for a very different economic model to the ones which have been discussed around Brexit, and we need to be making that argument at both national and European and indeed at global level. And your term for that model would be? I, I think we need to think about reviving our economy so it becomes more socially productive and sustainable. We need to think harder about how to ensure not just social but also environmental sustainability and how far that can be compatible with economic growth. The bigger issue around all this is how can we face up to fundamental social and environmental risks? How can we deal with climate change, migration, growing inequality while maintaining economic growth. I do not want to argue now or otherwise for a no-growth economy. I'm willing to argue for a sustainable economy. And a sustainable economy, how to achieve it, is a political and a regulatory question. And of course, as we've been discussing, that is really what Brexit comes down to in the end. It's really about regulation. To argue for a sustainable economy is to argue for, I believe, a fairer economy. But it can also be a productive and successful and innovative one. A radical solution to the problems of Brexit. To sum up, and let's go back to the beginning, it is the neoliberal economic model that the UK has followed, like much of the rest of Europe, that has led voters to opt for Brexit, just marginally, because they feel left behind is the term that people use. If we're moving out of a phase where neoliberalism can win votes for politicians, what type of economic model will the UK move forward to in the future? Do we know? Well, this is where Brexit's very paradoxical because what's been proposed by the Brexiters is that we deregulate further. So many of them are libertarians, strong neoliberals, people like Patrick Minford, the economist, Daniel Hannan, the MEP. They want to use Brexit to further deregulate the economy and they will use trade deals with third countries to cut standards that currently apply because we're part of the EU. Standards on food protection, health and safety protection, worker rights, environmental protection. 
I think that in policy-making circles across the social sciences, the neoliberal experiment is widely perceived now to have failed and to have led to the sorts of inequality and social fragmentation which produced the Brexit vote, producing the rise of populism in North America, Donald Trump's election, and putting the future of the democratic rule of law state under some threat. So I think there's a shift away from neoliberalism, but for those who, who strongly supported it and want to deepen it, Brexit's an opportunity to rehabilitate an idea that's failing and an argument they're losing. I don't see Brexit leading to actually further deregulation, because even though many of the supporters of Leave want this to happen, I think if you look again at the broader political scene, leaving aside perhaps a minority of Conservative MPs with a hard Brexit, even the Conservative Party itself is moving away from neoliberal policy positions. In the 2017 general election, they campaigned on a platform which essentially said, we are no longer believers in the free market. These were words in the Conservative Party manifesto. And Theresa May's Prime Ministership has been characterised by at least a dialogue, a debate about workers on boards, about social cohesion, about the need to re-regulate the economy. And even this morning there's discussion of a new bill that will improve workers' rights, a government measure. Right, This is new for the Conservative Party because for the past 30 or 40 years they've been deregulating labour law. Now they're saying maybe to deal with the gig economy we need to bring back workers' rights. So Brexit needs to be seen in this context. If it goes ahead as planned, those who've supported it will try to use it as an opportunity to further liberalise, as they would see it, the economy. This would be a disaster because I think it would just worsen the inequality that we're seeing. In the medium to long term, whatever happens with Brexit, I think we're at a turning point where we're seeing a move back to social cohesion being an objective of policy, and that implies re-regulation of the economy. And that implies we stay within Europe because the trade deals also come with social sign-up to social European policies. So what's interesting about staying in the EU, of course, or even with the kind of deal that's now being discussed, if there's a, a UK-wide customs union, that in effect means that the UK, including Northern Ireland, of course, this is part of the backstop debate, we would stay within the customs union rules and m almost all of the single market rules which are relevant because the same regulatory regime has to apply across the Irish border. That's the position of the so-called backstop. But because we do not want to have a so-called border in the Irish Sea, we will end up agreeing this for the whole of the UK. And as of November 2018, this is the UK government's position. That's what the Prime Minister appears to be negotiating towards. So that implies staying in the regulatory regime of the single market, which essentially is for free trade to happen, you must agree to all these rules about social and environmental and product market standards. If we stick with this regime, we will continue to be aligned with a mainland European model, which doesn't believe in complete deregulation, is not libertarian, but is essentially about a managed or coordinated economy. To leave that regime and to enter into free trade deals with third countries like the United States, which would mean signing up to either their standards or to lower standards in general, that's a very different model. But what's now being proposed by the government is a regime where actually very little changes on the regulatory front. We stay within the European regulatory model without being a full member of the EU, without really being in the EU. We'll have a kind of quasi-Norwegian external status, but not exactly that either. But we'll be subject to many of the same rules. So 
this seems to me to be what Brexit is actually about. It's about whether we align ourselves with a mainland European model that successfully delivered economic growth and equality for most of the post-war period, admittedly, the last 10 years, it's been much more difficult for the EU to maintain this balance. But they've been more successful in maintaining a, a high growth economy and a socially equitable one, more successful than the United States has been or any other trading bloc. So I think that the future for us in the UK should be to continue to align ourselves by one mode or another with this mainland European model and not to be too distracted by alternatives which will, I I don't think, deliver a good future for us. Simon Deakin, thank you very much indeed for talking to our podcast series and giving your time so generously talking about Brexit and these issues are going to be discussed at your conference on Brexit in November in Cambridge. Thank you, Bonnie.